Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Monday the 6th of November. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, US non-farm payrolls increased 150,000 last month, less than expected, and barely half of a downward revised 297,000 advance in September. Economists had expected a total of 180,000 new jobs for October. The unemployment rate climbed to a 21-month high of 3.9% in October from 3.8% in September. The report also showed monthly wage growth slowing and the participation rates ticking down. A private gauge of China's services activity grew less than expected in October, adding to signs of fragility within the economic recovery. The Kaishin China General Service PMI rose slightly to 50.4 in October from September's nine-month low of 50.2. That was below the consensus estimate among economists of 51. Hong Kong's private sector activity contracted further in October to an 11-month low, as new business, including that from mainland China, continued to fall. The S&P Global Hong Kong PMI dropped to 48.9 in October from 49.6 a month earlier. That was the fourth straight month of falls in private sector activity and the lowest reading since November 2022 due to a sustained drop in new orders and a decline in output. Danish shipping line Maersk, a bellwether for global trade, said Friday it will cut 10,000 jobs, almost a tenth of its workforce, after it reported sharp falls in revenues and profits in a difficult market environment. Maersk said it would cut its workforce to below 100,000 from 110,000 in January 2023. The firm, which transports goods for major retailers such as Nike, said profits had plunged by 92% in its most recent quarterly results. On today's programme, I'm joined by Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Tim, Hu- Tim Huxley, Chairman of Mandarin Shipping. And providing a view from mainland China will be Anan Wu, the Chairman and CEO of Surfing Group. If you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, after three straight months of losses, the S&P 500 notched its best week of the year. The S&P 500 stock index closed up 0.9% on the day at 4,358 and 5.9% over the week for its best five-day gain since early November 2022. The Dow rose 222 points, or 0.7% to 34,061. Over the week, the Dow added 5.1%, its best five sessions in more than a year, and the last time it advanced more in a week was back in October 2022. The Nasdaq Composite jumped 1.4% to 13,478. For the week, the Nasdaq was up 6.6% in its best week since November 2022. Treasuries climbed across the curve. The yield on the two-year US Treasury note, which moves inversely to price and tracks interest rate expectations, dropped 14 basis points to a two-month low of 4.85% following the jobs data, as investors cut expectations of further monetary tightening. Yields on 10-year notes dipped below 4.5% for the first time in a month. Oil futures were sold into the weekend on the soft US jobs data, and after Hezbollah's leader said the group doesn't plan on conducting a large-scale attack on Israel for now. Brent crude rose as high as $87.80 a barrel in early trading, but then reversed to fall 2% to $84.89 a barrel. For the week, Brent was down 4.8%. 
Gold put in a poor performance over the week considering the slump in the US dollar. Spot gold rose a third of a percent Friday to $1,992 an ounce for a weekly loss of 0.7%. The US dollar saw massive selling, with the US dollar index down 1% against a basket of peers, its biggest weekly drop since July. The US dollar Japanese yen rate ended the day 0.7% lower at 149.37 yen per dollar. Onshore and offshore yuan were buoyed by improved dialogue between China and the US. In Shanghai, the yuan was up 0.2% at 7.30 renminbi per dollar. China's Shanghai Composite Index rose 0.7% to 3,031, snapping a three-day losing streak. For the week, it was up 0.4%, underperforming most US, European and Asian benchmarks. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index was up 434 points, or 2.5% Friday, shrugging off, shrugging off a survey which showed the city's private sector activity contracted further in October. The Hang Seng saw a weekly gain of 1.5% to its highest level in over two weeks, and its second straight week of gains. Looks like that may continue at the open this morning. Futures markets pointing to a gain of about 100 points for the Hang Seng, that's 0.6%. The index projected to start the day and the new week at around 17 and you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Part of a brand new week. Let's welcome our Monday morning guests. We have with us Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management. Morning, Alex. Hi, morning, Peter. And also joining us, Tim Huxley, Chairman of Mandarin Shipping. Morning to you, Tim. Good morning, Peter. Non-farm payrolls increased 150,000 last month. That was less than expected and also barely half of a downward revised 297,000 advance in September, a Bureau of Labor Statistics report showed Friday. Economists had expected a total of 180,000 new posts for October. The August figure for new jobs was also revised downwards by 62,000. The unemployment rate, that climbed to a 21-month high of 3.9% in October from 3.8% in September. The survey of households showed a more than 200,000 increase in those who'd lost their job or completed a temporary one. And the report also showed monthly wage growth slowing and the participation rate ticking down. Average earnings edged 0.2% higher. That's a slight slowdown from the 0.3% increase in the previous month. Earnings were up 4.1% from a year earlier. That's the smallest annual advance since mid-2021, following an upwardly revised 4.3% in September. And in a departure from the recent trend, the supply of labour declined, prompting a drop in the participation rates, the share of the working, uh, the share of the population that's working or looking for work. That's the labour participation rate. It's at 62.7%. Alex, are we seeing now the first signs of maybe uh, the employment market starting to crack in, uh, in the US and slow down? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, we probably will have, uh, we are seeing the impact of the high interest rate finally. So I think this is impacting the uh, employment market. So uh, very likely, I think uh, this may continue as a trend. Yeah, I think uh, that's certainly the case. Um, people people are just not spending the money. And uh, you've seen that with the, that mention you made about Maersk, uh, their, their issues at the moment. And... Uh, Yes, I, I, I'm not particularly uh, upbeat about uh, expectations for the next few months. Mm, we're starting to see, aren't we, layoffs increase in certain sectors like uh, the financial sector, like technology, and now we have that mask news um, as well. There are signs, aren't there, Alex, that, that, that these layoffs are starting to pick up? 
Yeah, I think uh, for finance sectors, because actually the market actually have been um, doing going nowhere, uh, especially in certain parts of the world. So I think uh, that probably is the part that uh, we are probably is continuously lay off. And for the tech, I think uh, many companies actually are downsizing uh, because probably of the advance of AI. Of course, we probably may see some pickup in AI jobs as well. Uh, and and I think uh, probably we may see um, the real economy to to start to suffer because uh, right now probably we may see people to um, spend less and also I think that they've switched to um, experience uh, spending more so that would I think affect a certain kind of jobs. Is is this what data that we're seeing? Is it consistent with the soft landing that the uh, that the Fed hopes to achieve, and the economists are saying that they are going to achieve? Is the, is the data in line with that, or has the Fed overdone it, and and is it at risk now of tightening us into a recession? I think they probably eventually would have overdone it. I think that they probably may still let the high rate to stay uh, uh, for quite some time. Uh, right now, people are expecting the the rates to peak, but I don't think uh, they would go down. So I think uh, we probably may still see the Fed overdone the situation. Mm. In in your industry, Tim, what, are you seeing signs at all of um, of, of a recession? Oh, well, certainly. I mean, as you see, uh, those uh, that data from Merck. I mean, since uh, cutting their January twenty twenty three headcount uh, by ten thousand, uh, their third quarter profits. Uh, came in at 538 million. Now, this is one of the largest liner shipping companies, container shipping companies in the world. So their third quarter profits in at 538 million. Previous September third quarter uh, in 2022, it was nine and a half billion. Mm, what so a turnaround! Is a pretty spectacular decline. Yep. Now, shipping always has its own particular issues, but this very much does reflect what is going on in the wider world. Uh, and uh, we are going to need uh, an upturn in trade, uh, which doesn't seem likely at the moment. So what you're going to have to have is ships being pulled from services, trying to reduce capacity. Maybe some of the older ships will get recycled. But then we've got actually quite a long-term problem here, because over the next 18 months, you've got more new container ships being delivered from shipyards than you've had in the whole of the previous five years. <laughs> and this is a massive hangover <laughs> mm -hmm. from when during COVID these companies were making so much money and it was a lot of it was being invested in new ships uh, you know environmentally friendly ships ships which are can run on LNG ammonia very various other different alternative fuels so there's been massive investments in the industry but it all means extra capacity now fine 90% of everything goes by sea so this is a critically important industry but You've now got this massive overcapacity, and that will take years to work your way through. Is, is this boom and bust normal for the shipping industry? Does it normally go through these cycles, or is this one a bit extreme because of COVID, when, as you say, they were just making massive amounts of money, weren't they? They were shipping uh, a lot of goods, so that, you know, there was high demand, and now that's all gone into reverse. Is this more extreme than normal? Uh this, in, in the container sector, this has been particularly extreme. But boom and bust is the nature of the shipping business. This is not a business for widows and orphans <laughs> by any stretch. And, uh, but, you know, they're, they're, are we going to have issues with shipping companies um, going bust or whatever? Well, there was so much money made over the previous few years. They have all managed to pay down a lot of debt. Uh, and so there's, there's quite a lot of money in the system. But you can burn through that pretty quickly. So we're not looking at a really great outlook for 
the you know, into 2024. I mean, and the the CEO of Maersk, he said things better improve or 2024 will be dire. Right. So, <laughs> With companies your, going under. Uh, well, could be. Uh, but, uh, you know, if shipping has this amazing ability to sort of uh, readjust. And so what we'll see is we'll see capacity withdrawn. People will stop ordering new ships. Uh, values are much lower and the cost of a ship, because, I mean, the second-hand market for ships is a market in itself. It's like real estate. Mm. Uh, and those values are coming down. So, but this is the, the magnitude of this overcapacity problem we've got in the container sector at the moment is going to take quite a long time to work through. So I'd hold on, I'd hold on into next year before you start putting your money into it. And, and uh, I just look at it. I mean, uh, I was actually in Europe uh, a few weeks ago at a, at a conference. I was chairing a panel there and I had four ship owners who between them own over 200 bulk carriers. Mm-hmm. And I asked the, the final question I asked them was, if I give you 100 million US dollars, what are you going to do with it? Where would you invest it? And it wasn't, you know, I'd invest it in economical bulk carriers or something. Each and every one of them said three months treasuries. So they're not, they're not, look, they're not looking <laughs> to invest. <laughs> not in their own business no. then. But uh, even though this is dire, obviously for the container shipping industry, if you're the person paying to move goods from, from A to B, it's probably pretty good, isn't it? Because it should allow you to be able to negotiate a lower price. Yeah. I mean, spot rates on containers. So if you, say, wanted to move your furniture from Asia to the UK or something, the cost per container, yes, that's dropped massively from the highs we were suffering in COVID. Now, so yes, the cost of moving one of these metal boxes has dropped. But the problem is, is that people are not buying what you carry in those boxes. So there's actually, so it's, it's all round. It's, it's this circle we've got, which is driving everything lower and uh, shipping is just part of it and and you say there's been sort of overcapacity now they, they, they presumably didn't see this coming they carried on ordering new ships and you know these are these ships are being built but there didn't seem to be any sort of um sort of forewarning or any sort of foresight about you know interest rates were going to go up and you know the the economy was going to slow ship owners are their own worst enemies some of the times and uh, they'll they'll always sort of say well wait a minute, look, the earnings are really good, I'm going to order a new ship, and so, but I, don't, I hope nobody else does, but of course <laughs> everybody does, so right. you get this sort of herd mentality, and everybody goes in, and the shipyards are out there selling these new designs, and, and everybody's been making money, so it's just, and interest rates were very low, so it really was very attractive to do it, but sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, you get a surge in new orders of ships, and you will then have a recession. When it combines with a really difficult global economic outlook, mm. then this can be, you know, this is, this is on a scale uh, of, say, the shipping recession we had in, uh, in 2009, where uh, on certain sectors, I mean, there at that time, the cost of moving a cargo of iron ore from uh, Brazil to China, you'd be paying about $300,000 a day uh, in May of 2008, I think it was, uh, by October, you were down to $3,000 a day. So mm. it swung by 99%. And that's the volatility in the nature and one of the attractions of shipping. <laughs> you have to be a bit mad, don't you, to want to be in this industry? <laughs> I think brave and able to take a, a sort of 
reasonably cautious long-term view. <laughs> Alex, is, is what Tim's describing here for the shipping industry, which is obviously pretty extreme, is this a warning for, for the global um, economy? Because companies like Maersk, they're, they're sort of bellwethers for global trade, aren't they? Yeah, of course. I think uh, people probably should uh, against uh, uh, the, the, the long-awaited recessions to come, I think. Uh, but now the market actually take that as the best case scenario. I think that they think uh, if a recession comes, then the U.S. interest rate will come down. So that may be good for stocks. So I think um, people regard that as the best case scenario. But I think uh, we have to also look at the earnings side, uh, not just on the interest rate side. I mean, the markets were pretty euphoric after this jobs report. I mean, basically, they're saying uh, that the, the, the global cycle of interest rate rises is, is over, not just in the US, but also in Europe as well. Um, and, and the central bank has sort of pretty much confirmed that. Is, are they right? Are we now at the turning point for interest rates? Yeah, I think uh, probably we may not see the rates to go up. But uh, the point is that they will stay high. I mm. think so. This interest rate environment, I think, uh, would stay for quite some time because I think, uh, as I've said, uh, the Fed would overdone it. So uh, eventually, I think uh, people would recognize that. So uh, we probably may still see the impact of high interest rate. The rate right now is still high enough, I think, to 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 deter the economic activities. And when when you look at the um, the, the data, I mean, the way the, the the markets are sort of reacting to that is that we've sort of reached a peak, but at the same time, um, are they pricing in enough the fact that you know these rates are not going to come down? Uh, no, I think uh, uh, we are actually seeing some kind of short covering last Friday, mm. so we are seeing um, uh, smaller companies to pick up at a very fast pace. I think that's the, the characteristics of a short covering. But if you look at ARKK, actually this up uh, uh, 15 to 20% in just a few days. So mm. I think that is uh, the power of a short covering. But I don't think uh, people um, are discounting the, the, the risk of earnings because uh, they probably may still be covering their, their, their shorts uh, on this rally. So what moves markets next then? Because if now, you know, it's been really markets have been moving and particularly the Treasury bond market on whether or not we're at the end of this rate hiking um, cycle. If markets have now assumed, yes, we are, we are there, that's the end, they're going to stay higher for longer. What do we focus on next now? Is it, is it the economic data and whether or not we're slipping into recession? What, what is it? I think we'll still be earnings uh, the, uh, driving the market. So we probably may see um, polarized performance. So I think uh, we will see a very narrow-based uh, uh, market strength. So uh, very likely we may see second-tier companies to come down because of the risk of earnings. But uh, the big ones, I think people think they will survive. And, and actually, with the help of AI, boom, I think uh, they probably may still like uh, companies like those are biggest tech. So very likely, I think uh, the market would be tilted towards the biggest one. So uh, in, if you look at the index, probably you will still feel the market to be OK. But if you look at the Russell 2000, I think uh, you will feel that in a bear market later on. Mm. So if, if the Fed is now um, done, We've had all this buying in bonds and, and stocks. They're, they're sort of both going up and down together, aren't they, at the moment, bonds and stocks, where we had a whole period where they were going down together. Now, suddenly, uh, they, they seem to be going up uh, again. This, this rally, though, is it going to run out of steam fairly quickly? I think uh, if you look at the Nasdaq, probably it's difficult to call. But if you look at the Russell 2000, I think that it should run out of steam quite soon because the short covering would not last <coughs> very long time. Mm. I think uh, the, the most fierce part probably has been done. 
So um, we may see some small extension, but I don't think uh, the upside would be too much in the short term, even in the short term. Yeah. The, the irony is the Fed is sort of be relying on the bond market to do some of the tightening um, for it. And it's been basically saying it doesn't need to tighten any further because, you know, the bond markets are, are tightening the, through the financial markets. But that's sort of at risk of getting unwound now, isn't it? If, uh, if bonds suddenly start soaring like they've done and, and yields come down, then that, that sort of tightening goes into reverse. Yeah, of course. But I think uh, if you look at the bond market, I don't think uh, people uh, would be very um, optimistic towards their long end uh, because uh, they have felt the pain uh, during the decline and then you, you are stuck with the, um, the, the the bond for quite some time. I think uh, they probably would be very cautious um, in investing uh, to those along long end because uh, even... They, they, they probably even would question about the uh, repayment ability of the U.S. government because uh, the public mm. finance actually is quite very messy over there. So I think uh, people probably would uh, put a new premium on those along end. So I think uh, the bond market may not have too much uh, rebound on the long end side. Mm. Okay. I mean, Tim, this is a significant moment, isn't it? Because if interest rates now have finally um, peaked after, what, two years of basically central banks underestimating inflation and having to tighten and much faster than, uh, than than they thought to try and get this down. But nevertheless, they have done it. I mean, you know, the US inflation reached a peak of almost 10%. We're now down to around sort of three. It feels like this is a significant moment for both, not just the markets, but also for the economy um, as well. Yeah, but I agree. I mean, we're going to be uh, with higher interest rates for some time to come. And we've got so anaesthetized to low interest rates <laughs> and all mm. of the problems and they did cause a lot of problems. Uh, so we're going to have to live with these higher interest rates. And that will probably actually, if there are other factors at play, that's going to hold back on companies investing. Uh, and so we're not going to have that growth that would come there. So I'm, uh, I'm extremely cautious at the moment. And, uh, you know, I share the view of my fellow ship owners of uh, saying, well, just hold off a bit at the moment. <laughs> if you look at it through the shipbuilding eyes or the ship, uh, the ship container eyes, it's, uh, it's not so great. But well, I if you're a ship builder, uh, you're absolutely running flat out through mm. until 2026 uh, in the, probably in the passionate hope that your customers are still going to be around then to pick up the ship that they ordered. Uh, but um, it's, it's certainly for the end of this year, I'm not looking for any fireworks. I mean, it's an important point because companies are going to have to refinance at some point, yeah. aren't they? Maybe they've locked in, uh, you know, these low rates for a while, but eventually, and not all the companies have, but eventually you're going to have to refinance. And that's when, uh, really, you're going to find out who's been swimming without any uh, bathing costume on as well. And Buffett famously says... Indeed, the tide will go out. Uh, and uh, that, that's really going to be the day of reckoning for, for, for quite a few businesses. Mm. We're starting to see, Alex, um, credit now uh, contracting uh, once again. That, that last happened during the financial crisis. How much of a warning is, is that for us? Of course, I think uh, because people are very cautious towards the long end and they, they, they probably may just uh, do short-term treasuries. Mm. So I think that that's why uh, we are seeing credit to lock up. And for companies, actually, they need to uh, refinance at a higher rates. And it's difficult to, to issue bonds, I think, uh, for, for, for those smaller companies. So that's why I think we are seeing credits to, to tighten. And that, I think, can maybe a potential um, uh, very bearish factor. And our credit spreads widening in the market. That's also another warning sign, isn't it, usually? Yeah, of course, yeah. 
Now, what about China? Um, a private gauge of China's services activity grew less than expected in October. The Kaishin China General Service PMI it rose slightly to 50.4 in October from September's nine-month low of 50.2. That was below the consensus estimate among uh, economists of uh, 51. I mean, Alex, when we look at all the data we had out of uh, China uh, last week, we had the whole series of official data um, and the Kaishin data. Looks like a fairly consistent picture now. Manufacturing back in contraction, services just about holding up, but not great. Yeah, I think, uh, of course, uh, right now China is still facing the um, problems uh, of its uh, housing market and also the um, relocation of many manufacturing activities and also probably the global recession risk. So I think that those bearish factors actually always remains on the economic side. But uh, people actually are, are picking up some stocks because uh, we have uh, so many policies supporting and also the, the, the global interest rate uh, picking scenario also helping. Mm. Tim, renewed deterioration, isn't there, in factory activity on the market? Well, yes, but also on the service sector. I mean, that was, you know, the great hope uh, that was gonna, going to expand. Uh, and that's obviously not expanding as fast as what people had hoped. Uh, but um, so that, and then the cutback in manufacturing, uh, there is a lot of talk about some relocation. But uh, as we've talked on this program before, I mean, relocating a factory out of China and setting up somewhere else, it's a big ask. Mm. Uh, I mean, training of staff and all of that. So, I mean, China is still going to remain a critically important manufacturing base. I mean, the average of the two services, PMI, is the Kaishin and the official one. It's now at a 10-month low of 50.3s. And if you look at within the sub-indices, uh, it seems to be the uh, the property sector um, investments there and construction that's really sort of dragging it all lower. Yes, and then that has a knock-on effect on uh, industries like steel and cement. Uh, and so it's it, that's actually a really quite significant uh, number there. Mm. Seems to be weak across the board, really, doesn't it? Is this because of the property sector? Is that really now having an impact spreading out to you know, other sectors? Because when, when you look at the whole series of PMIs, um, they really were, well, as I say, weak across the board. Well, I mean, property is uh, such a an important factor in the whole Chinese economic story. So if there's bad news there, then, uh, you know, it will ripple through the whole economy. Mm. What, what's China got to do to try and avoid, um, you know, the, the economy slipping further? Oh, Peter, that's a heck of a question. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what has China got to do? Uh, Many things. Uh. There, there are a multitude of things at, uh, at, at every level uh, in, uh, in society. And I think... Uh, you know, there, there, are still, there are still a lot of good stories there. And mm. uh, you look at the growth of uh, where they've achieved dominant position in things like manufacturing of electric vehicles and some of the sort of technology areas that they're really, really, they've really got the ball and they're run, running with it. Uh, and then if you look at uh, the growth of renewable energy in China, I mean, again, a huge amount of capacity is coming on stream. So they're mm. making enormous progress there. But... It's such a huge economy, such a vast country. There is no easy solution to any individual problem. It seems to be that what China is saying at the moment is, or one of their solutions is they are going to basically borrow uh, to invest in manufacturing, to, to boost, uh, to try and boost the, the manufacturing sector. They're also talking about trying to relieve some of the pressure on the local governments. The problem is, though, 
how do we know that all this investment is going to go into productive investment? It didn't in the property sector, did it? They, you know, initially they wanted to invest in the property sector and it's turned out to be rather unproductive investment. The risk is they're just going to do the same thing in the manufacturing sector um, as well. Well, yes. I mean, when it comes to manufacturing, I mean, the one thing you're just going to be sure of is that you're going to manufacture stuff that people want to buy. Mm. Uh, so get that product and that's right. the problem there isn't the demand there at isn't the, the moment yes yeah. it's not as if there isn't enough manufacturing or enough mm-hmm. investment or enough credit it's just that there's not enough demand yeah and oh. i think that that's at the moment until people are more comfortable till people are more confident that's the situation i think that will actually continue mm. and what about hong kong hong kong's private sector activity that contracted further in october as new business including that from the mainland china continued to fall the s&p global pmi dropped to 48.9 in october from 49.6 a month earlier that's the fourth straight monthly fall in private sector activity alex also this has been combined with the news from paul chan that uh, our economic growth is going to be revised down it's going to provide uh, a new forecast this week uh what's your assessment i think uh, hong kong actually is very gloomy right now because if you look at every pillars of the economy we are facing challenges so i think uh it probably may still the economy to still go down i think because if you look at the private consumption sectors i think many hong kong people actually are spending on online shopping from china and then even for the experience uh, spending they are going to shenzhen now so um very likely we might continue to, to see the retail market to, to shrink. And then for the housing market, I think probably, hopefully, we will stabilize. But I don't think we would have too much activities. And for the equities market, unless we got some <coughs> big companies coming in Hong Kong, I think we probably may still have a low turnover for a while. If you look at the GDP figures, they grew 4.1% year on year in the third quarter. That sounds quite good, although you have to bear in mind it's the base effect is there. We're comparing it with a poor period. But if you look at the sequential um, growth, how it grew quarter on quarter, just 0.1%. I mean, that's pretty pretty meagre, Tim, isn't it? Well, that could be a, could almost, almost be an accounting error, couldn't it? Uh, it's, uh, you look around in the Hong Kong economy, it is pretty slow. People are being cautious, people aren't out there spending money. I mean, fine, the streets are pretty busy over Halloween, but outside of that, uh, you go out and uh, I mean, restaurants and everywhere, it is still really struggling. So we've got a long way to go. Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll have more people visiting, uh, and maybe businesses will continue to see the benefit of being based in Hong Kong, but we have got quite a battle ahead of us. We're also having um, issues on our on our financing, aren't we? The budget deficit now. We've got the new race to see who can come up with the, the, the next estimate of what our budget deficit is going to be. But Deloitte's is estimating about 130 billion Hong Kong dollars. Paul Chan was saying 50 billion at the beginning of the year um, in his budget. Is is this becoming a problem as well, or is that are we in a good position in that at least we can borrow? I think uh, first of all we can borrow, but uh, if you want to solve that deficit, I think you need to see a revival in land sales. The only way to solve that problem is uh, land sales. But uh, with high interest rate, uh, it's very difficult because uh, if you look at the the discount rate, uh, actually we are we are up for probably five percent already. And mm-hmm. then you are and, and and the development process of a land in Hong Kong actually extremely slow. So we probably may, may t- need to discount that rate for seven to eight years. Then, then mm. that, that means uh, we have a very huge depreciation in land value, and the government is not willing to accept that. So I think that that's why we are seeing uh, 
no land sales at all right now. So uh, I, I think uh, if we cannot solve that problem, if the government do not want to sell the um, land at the new reasonable level, then I think uh, we probably continue to see the deficit to to to, to mm. balloon. Yeah, I think the the figures the um the, the revenue from land sales is only about eighteen percent of what was forecast at this stage um, of the year. So a massive a massive shortfall. Yeah, I think another thing is that they need to speed up the development process in Hong Kong. I think that the that the the, the wet tapes are, are too serious in Hong Kong right now in 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 development of land sales and uh, the development of, of uh, property. So I think that they need to speed up that so that uh, we need to be, we may have maybe may we can discount less two years less then that is helping at least ten percent of the value. Hmm. Tim, this is uh, there's going to be a lot of focus on this, isn't there? I think in the coming uh, weeks on our on our revenues, on our budget deficits, on our the decline in our reserves. So I think some people are going to start to get quite worried about it. But we've always had that. I mean, we always uh, you know undershot or overshot on mm-hmm. on estimates. It would seem not very good at forecasting, really, are we? <laughs> no. So let's sort of see how that evolves. But um, you know, the fundamentals are there. It will. It will be a difficult period ahead, but how many difficult periods have we come through? Mm. I mean, I I tell you what, I'm feeling a lot happier going into next year of, uh, uh, of not having sort of quarantine and all the covid restrictions and everything mm, and uh, yeah, we'll come through it and there's always a silver lining somewhere. I remember, I mean, you know, we were talking about the container shipping industry. Covid was their all-time boom. So, you know, there's a silver lining to everything. Okay. Alex, final thoughts from you on the markets. Hong Kong stocks jumped by the most in uh, two months um, on Friday. Finally, we've seen a weekly gain of about 1.5%. So we're at the highest level in over about two weeks. But is it going to last? Hi, this is a very difficult question because we have so many times of uh, failed uh, upside attempt Mm. uh, in the last few months. I think uh, if you look at the property-related counters in Hong Kong, I think uh, they probably may not have much upside left. Uh, and the big tax, I think, are mainly on short covering strength because um, the uh, sale of uh, big shareholders still remain. So I don't think uh, that uh, they probably may have too much upside. If you go for the uh, big ones, I think Hong Kong EX probably may, the, may be the only one worth to try uh, because uh, probably may finally get... Um, some companies to come to Hong Kong to list. So mm. I think uh, uh, if you look at the overall picture, this is not too uh, sexy right now. But uh, the good thing is that we are seeing some strength in certain counters like uh, Lenovo, uh, Xiaomi, uh, or, and the EV sector. So some people are picking up values in Hong Kong right now. Mm. So uh, we are seeing some improvement in certain sectors. But overall, I think uh, we may not have too much uh, upside in the broad-based uh, uh, market. Okay, well, thank you both very much for your thoughts this morning. You heard there Alex Wong, who's director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, Tim Huxley, who is the chairman of Mandarin Shipping. I'm joined now by Dr. Yan M. Wu, who is chairman and CEO of Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore. Morning, Yan M. Morning, Peter. How are you this morning? I'm very well, thank you. We had a lot of data last week, didn't we, from China. We've had the whole series of PMIs, both the official PMIs and the Kaishin uh, PMIs. The, the, the sort mm-hmm. of feeling seems to be manufacturing has slipped back into contraction. Services just about holding up, but not looking great, really, was it? Yes, uh, indeed. Uh, both uh, the national uh, 
PMI and the Cai CMI both uh, at uh, 49.5 in October. And uh, the Cai Xin PMI, you know, has uh, decreased about 1.1%, uh, 1.1% compared to September. So it's still back back to the contraction side, the, the, the manufacturing, as you just mentioned. I think the main reason was two parts. One is the uh, uh, demand is the lack of support. And secondly, the price uh, actually dropped. Uh, so if you look at the uh, October uh, pr production index, which was 50.9% in October, is uh, actually five months expansion. Uh, the new order index actually is 49.5% and the uh, uh, purchasing index at 49.8%. Both uh, drop back to the contraction uh, you know, region. So that indicates where the new order or the purchasing, um, you know, they both show the demand is really weak. And uh, the uh, in addition, the original the uh, uh, raw material uh, you know, purchasing index and also the factory index have all both dropped uh, compared to September, uh, 6.9 and 5.8%. Uh, so that's really uh, shown the demand is uh, not there. And also the, the global uh, commodity price uh, also dropped in October. If you look at the uh, the oil price, uh, despite the Middle East, uh, this uh, geopolitical conflict, the, uh, both London, you know, uh, uh, Brent uh, oil price and and the New York OPEC price has uh, all, all, both dropped about 3% mm. uh, compared to the average monthly price. And it's even dropped 12%. Uh, compared to uh, September, so so all these uh, factors, uh, you know, whether it's uh, demand side or the international commodity price, uh, both uh, contribute the uh, manufacturing, uh, you know, PMI back to the contraction uh, period. And the government's solution to this, one of its proposals, seems to be basically to borrow more money, increase the uh, the budget deficits, um, borrow maybe a trillion yuan and, uh, yuan and then use some of that mm -hmm. to invest into new manufacturing. But I'm wondering, isn't there the risk here um, that they're just going to invest more into unproductive parts of the economy, just like they did with property? Um, you know, it didn't really go into in a, a particularly productive part of the economy. The risk is going to be the same with manufacturing because the problem is it's not that there isn't enough supply and there isn't enough credit. The mm -hmm. problem is um, demand. Yeah, demand, demand, demand. You know, that's the probably the... The keyword current, uh, uh, you know, in the macroeconomics and uh, the policy seems also to uh, evolve around the how to re revive demand and or to how to restore the confidence. Uh, you know, the the main I guess uh, the part for the demand is is property sector. You know, mm -hmm. that's the the most uh, leveraged, uh, you know, industrial sector. Uh, but if you look at the bank credit. Uh, you know, in those two sectors, uh, uh, whether it's the industrial sector and also the property sector, uh, you know, property sector continue to drop. Uh, you know, in the bank credit, and uh, because of all various policy in the past few years, the industrial sector, the uh, 
credit uh, increase, trying to hedge against the drop of the property sector in the bank loan books. Uh, so that's uh, you know indicates the bank want to support the uh, whether it's construction or manufacturing to really offset the property sector sloppiness. Yeah. Uh, so if you, yeah, so if you look at the, the October uh, service, uh, you know PMI, it's actually, uh, you know, even despite the October Golden Week, uh, the uh, the number actually still showing weak. Uh, it's their service PMI is 50.1 percent, and uh, again dropped 0.8 percent uh, from September. So that's uh, mainly uh, caused by the you know, the uh, property sector and also the capital market, uh, you know, the overall service sector. Mm. So so that shows that both, uh, you know, the consumer side, the uh, the October Golden Week picked up a little bit, but still the consumer confidence is not there yet. And also the construction sector, you know, still remain to be, uh, you know, shown in the next few months. And of course, the stock markets, capital markets uh, also showed lack of confidence. Mm. So all these, uh, you know, contribute the service sector, uh, all the demand side still kind of weak. And, and yeah. as you say, this is really a confidence issue. I mean, people have lost confidence in their housing markets. I presume there's also worries about employment as well, particularly when you look at those Kaishin PMIs, because so many of those companies are, are crucial to mm-hmm. job creation um, on the mainland. Yeah. It's these private enterprises that create about 80% of the jobs. Is there a worry now that the weakness will just stop firms hiring and that will also drag on consumer confidence, I presume? Yeah, that's, uh, you know, could be correlated uh, to a quite certain level. And also, it may cause a, a vicious spiral, you know, down, down, downturn, uh, you know, from uh, demand to uh, lack of uh, investment and reinvestment. And also that lead to, you know, unemployment to raise high, uh, hikes. Uh, again, that leads also to the weak, uh, we- even weaker demand. So that's kind of a spiral cycle. Uh, so, so that's why I think in this recent, uh, you know, just uh, concluded the social, the central financial uh, committee meeting. Uh, there's a few, quite a few policy related to how to uh, increase the financial uh, investment on the national level to be a more strategic uh, policy. Uh, I think. The, the most focus is on three areas, so-called uh, <clears throat> that's related to the productive uh, housing uh, to make sure the average year, uh, you know, the lower income can have uh, uh, housing to live. And also the second is the uh, so-called uh, the village amount of village, amount of city to try to renovate. So that's the second part since uh, 2014 uh, regarding the sham uh, house building uh, reconstruction, and thirdly, is a around the public uh, in public infrastructure investment. Uh, so all those all those uh, three areas trying to offset the sloppiness of in the property sector, and uh, the if you look at the uh, the government uh, local vehicle, you know that level is very high. You know that's why I think uh, we have seen the. One trillion RMB uh, government bond, uh, special issued mm. for, you know, just uh, announced by the uh, PBU, uh, by the Minister of Finance. Actually, 500 billion have to use, have to spend 
by the end of this year, uh, in the fourth quarter. So, so that's trying to uh, you know offset the, the debt level in the you know local government uh, vehicles. Uh, so, in certain province, you know, the average government level debt has reached seventy five percent. In certain areas, even uh, government uh, local debt level has reached over a hundred percent. Especially the local government vehicle has uh, reached a maturity hike uh, as, as of this year. So, 2023 alone, the uh, overall uh, the the maturity level of government local vehicle has reached five trillion, mm-hmm. and that's the uh, the highest uh, peak you know since the last decade. So, what's, so, 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 yeah, so, yeah. What does the government propose to do about that? Is is it saying that it's going to take that debt? off of local governments and put it on like the central government's um, balance sheet or does it still expect the local governments to, to bear the losses because the losses are huge aren't they someone's got to bear these losses um, somewhere where where does Beijing think those losses should be yeah I think the uh, the central government's uh, bond and the one trillion one trying to use as a leverage uh, to increase uh, more you know the that payment for local government, mm. you know, uh, you know, just one trillion national government debt is not sufficient. Pay all of the local government, uh, you know, that. So, so there's some special projects uh, trying to, uh, you know, to have the local government to apply to the central government in order to use or access to to this one special one trillion bond. So, and this local government still have to put in additional. Uh, you know, spending for for accessing this uh, uh, national debt, government debt. Uh, so that's a, a, a kind of a leverage vehicle, if you will. And that uh, one trillion RMB already, you know, uh, uh, you know, contribute to the uh, deficit uh, GDP ratio from three point eight three percent. You know, at one three point eight trillion uh, deficit to three point eight percent, about four point eight trillion. RMB, so so that's already re- uh, overpassed the uh, the ceiling of the normally set by the central government uh, for the deficit level. Mm. So the local government uh, facing still facing quite you know uh, significant pressure uh, despite this one trillion RMB support uh, because the uh, the land selling revenue continues to drop. Uh, for local government, because that's mainly the government revenue income, uh, you know, where the uh, where they come from. Uh, if, especially when you look at the first half of um, 2023, the national, uh, in go on the whole national level, the land selling revenue has dropped 23 uh, percent, uh, you know, compared to last year. So. So that means the revenue continue to drop local government, but the maturity of the local government vehicle debt still reach a hike. So, so it's still quite a bit to challenge ahead of uh, how to resolve the local government uh, uh, debt, uh, you know, uh, uh, burden. And of course, this is all hanging over the markets as well. If we look at the performance um, in both Hong Kong and uh, Shanghai, the Shanghai composite is year to date it's down two uh, percent. 
Uh, the Hang Seng is even worse. Um, it's down almost 11%. It's the worst performer among the major global equity index yep. um, gauges. And foreigners have mm. been, been selling uh, mainland stocks in record amounts over the last uh, three months or so. What's it going to take to get confidence back in the markets and to get a rebound uh, going here? Yeah, indeed, uh, you know, both Asia and uh uh, Hong Kong Hansen Index are the two worst performers, you know, so far among the global major capital markets. <clears throat> and if you take a three-year uh, level, uh, you know, for the last three years, the uh, the most performing, uh, you know, uh, capital market globally actually are from uh, India. You know, that's uh, what you normally covered in your po- Indian podcast, and also Indonesia and Vietnam. So those uh, three emerging markets actually pick up the momentum for the last three years, uh, showing the capital market confidence and also the supply chain dividend uh, for those regions. Uh, even NASDAQ for the last three years uh, is compared to these three emerging markets actually show uh, a less perf- uh, uh, underperformance. Uh, so, you know, in, compar- in, comp- in contrast, uh, Shanghai uh, stock uh, composite has uh, still, you know, battling around the 3,000 point level. You know, that's, uh, it was some uh, joke about, you know, this is the 50th time that uh, since uh, uh, for the last uh, 20 years, the Shanghai Composite has uh, still battled around 3,000 point level. Uh, on one hand, we recognize that uh, indeed the, uh, the, uh, the, the capital market has a much higher capital market capitalization compared to a decade or two decades ago. Uh, but, uh, you know, this year alone, the IPO level in Shanghai and Shenzhen actually is the highest uh, among the globe. Uh, so even surpassed the U.S. IPO level. So that means supply is still driving, uh, you know, is contributing a lot to the stock market. And that uh, uh, itself has caused the underperformance. Because there's just not enough uh, liquidity uh, in the capital market with such a high level IPO. Secondly, so-called North Bond, North Bond hot money. You know, they uh, basically the foreign investor, uh, you know, lose the confidence or has, you know, show uncertainty uh, for the Chinese capital market. So they uh, basically left uh, gradually leaving the Chinese capital market, and that alone has uh, caused the downward pressure and uh, even cause more negative confidence to the domestic investors. Uh, so so those two factors, I would say, you know, IPO level and also the, uh, the, uh, the, the import of the downward price has caused, the, has caused uh, you know, even more confidence drop for both sides. So, so it's all about confidence, you know, how to restore the confidence back and the reverse expectation. Uh, for the capital market is the main uh, work had to do. That's why the capital market asked calls for the national, you know, the Huijin uh, capital, the, uh, whether it's the uh, government uh, uh, intervention or the, you know, the Huijin uh, uh, money has to spend, has to inject it into capital market to show a so-called uh, national team has to support is capital market. Okay. Well, Yannan, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed for coming onto the program this morning. Thank you, Peter. 
That's Dr. Yanan Wu, who is the chairman and CEO of Surfing Group, headquartered in Singapore. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more details about some of the topics I've been talking about today, along with information on other headlines and market moves in my daily newsletter. Take a look at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back with another show tomorrow. Joining me then will be Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Oldcroft, James Wong, chief executive officer at Cathasia Securities, and our US economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster Barry Wood. Bye for now. Money Talk.